Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Across nearly a decade and over 400 episodes of the Free Thoughts podcast, Trevor and I talked a lot about liberty. Today, I invited him on Reimagining Liberty to continue that conversation. At issue is the question of how to approach being an advocate for radical liberalism in a political environment that seems to have lost its taste for it. We range, as we often do, quite broadly, from how not to talk about liberty, to how to start fruitful arguments, to the dangers of contrarianism and overattachment to narratives. Trevor Burris is a research fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute and editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's also the continuing host of my beloved Free Thought podcast, and it was a joy getting to sit across microphones from him again. Trevor, you and I have spent our entire careers advocating for liberty and involved deeply in the liberty movement. Over that time, what, I guess, drives you nuts about the way that libertarians talk about this stuff? Or what do libertarians do wrong in how they approach advocating liberty to others? You know, it struck me, I'm thinking about this like uh, over the last few days, and I think that one thing that drives me crazy in the way you ask that is that the the impulse toward libertarianism can often be too mixed up to the impulse to contrarianism as like a personality trait and even offensiveness as a personality trait. So, you know, never forget that a conversation you have with someone about especially politics will usually contain a fair amount of posturing and the way people can posture within a given conversation that they are, you know, more X, more extreme, more radical, uh, some sort of thing that they like being. Uh, some people just like being contrarian. And we, and, you and know, I've talked about this, you know, in the past where you, you see some things come to go together, some personality traits. So if you're, you know, contrarian about your music, if you're contrarian about, you know, your tattoos, what you dress, how you dress, all those things are part of your personality. And then it's easier to become contrarian about your political views and make that more like more about why you believe your political views than just the fact that you think they're just and correct and moral. And so I've dealt with it for years when it comes to libertarians, especially younger libertarians who I think are are a little disturbed when they're not the most uh, extreme person in a room. So maybe, you know, it takes something to stand up in a class, you know, especially maybe at a, a university like Boulder where we went um, or, you know, where you're having a very different viewpoint on, say, public education. It takes some some gumption, some courage to stand up and like fight the whole class. And some people have a big self-identity in that fact. But then if you're in a room with 70 libertarians and suddenly every single one has skepticism towards public education at the least, suddenly you're not the kind of person who stands up and says what everyone doesn't want to hear in your mind. So you have to change your views. And then suddenly you're just, you know, more extreme for the purposes of being extreme. Um, this is just a bad way of doing political philosophy in general. And it's very bad for communication. And I mean, I invite listeners to think about those times. If you've ever been in a, a, a debate, think about like a, <clears throat> like a party where you're debating politics with someone and you kind of just start establishing and holding down a more extreme 
version of it just because it makes you feel good and like you it makes you feel nice to prod them so someone says you know you know well i really believe in public education and you say yeah public education is the most evil thing that has ever been done in the history of mankind i was like okay well really the most evil thing in the history of mankind i mean you know it's not very productive so i think that kind of reaching out and trying to respect people and meet them where they are and not trying to posture and say, well, you know, here's my reasonable view, not my radical view. Like, I don't believe this because it's radical. I believe this because it's reasonable. This is a very moderate liberal view, like say public education, that public education is a product, is a problem. And that used to be very common. There used to be a very common liberal view and now it's, it's very strange. So if you're representing that view, don't do it in the name of like your own contrarianism, like do it in the name of the justness and the morality of your cause and try and understand where people are coming from. I think that, yeah, that, that, that general attitude libertarians is probably the one that drives me the most crazy. That raises what I think is an interesting and thorny issue in, in political advocacy though, and that's the role of moral argument because one – reason that we advocate political, social, economic, and so on, liberty is because we believe that is the moral thing or that restricting those is, is immoral. Um, and you don't have to argue that way. There are certainly lots of people who argue for liberty on just like kind of good policy grounds, you know, that we want to achieve the goal, like this goal in public policy, and it turns out that giving people more freedom is a better way to achieve those policy goals than state intervention regulation, so on and so forth. Um, and those are those are important arguments to make, but that's not typically the way that like I argue for liberty. It's, you know, it's not the way that a lot of people who make the case do it. But Importing morality into it often reads to people as – it's not contrarianism, but the the concern I think you raised about contrarianism is that it, it establishes like a conflict at the beginning of the debate and in, in a, like a defensiveness, you know, like you're – so that the public schooling is evil. Right as is not a good way to start a conversation about whether we should have public schooling or not. But part of that reason is because you have you have imported a strong moral claim in this case about evilness, and you have accused your opponent right off the bat of being evil, which is accusing them of a profound immorality if they support in this case public schooling, and they're probably not evil, right? But any moral argument that we make. So I constantly like the core of my argument for liberty is often that the sides either – so I think the left frequently overlooks, ignores, or willfully turns a blind eye to like the violence inherent in the system, the, the violence that gets inflicted upon people when you have the state intervene and not just on kind of these marginal like – all laws are backed by force, so a marginal increase in taxes means a little bit more violence, but just how the very system itself depends upon deep levels of violence and then comes to kind of see that as its natural mode of operating and that that's deeply morally troubling. Um, I think the right is typically 
better at recognizing the violence, but worse at seeing violence as a problem. Uh, but in either case, you're saying to people like you are by what you're advocating, you are either ignoring or embracing a like a deep moral wrong, which is behaving in violent ways towards each other. And that can make people fairly aggressive or not aggressive, defensive, right? It comes across as aggressive. And so how do we how do we tease out that difference or how do we be aware of the necessity of making strong moral claims in the political sphere while also dealing with the fact that strong moral claims can turn off a lot of people if you're placing them on kind of the wrong side of it or get read as, say, like just virtue signaling. Like this isn't actually a question about morality. It's just you trying to tell people you're better than them. I mean it's it's as much a rhetoric question. Like I think the morality component is absolutely crucial. Um, and to use the drug war, one of my specialties is a good example. Uh, you could always say that the drug war has bad outcomes. Um, and I think very – actually increasingly few, thankfully, people disagree with that when they look at how it's enforced in incarceration and we could just look at numbers of lost GDP due to drug war incarceration or something like that. But, you know, and those are important arguments. And, and again, it's, it's sort of where this person is coming from, but it's important to start with this thing, maybe not with the word evil, but to say like, I think you have a right to put in your body, whatever you want to put into your body um, as a presumption there. Um, now, whether or not you're painting someone in a conversation and saying, well, if you disagree with me, therefore you're evil, um, that's that's problematic communication. Of course, it's not really going to get you many places. And, you know, my experience, like it's effectively – I know like people like Michael Humer disagree with me where like it's very important to like start with the strong moral claim. But I think functionally, uh, it's easier and better to start with the weaker claim and kind of push someone just to say, well, you know, take like the drug war. If, if they don't accept that it has huge costs, like get there. Um, and then if, or public schooling, similar type of thing. I think that that ends up being, you know, what you're doing in a conversation. Let's think about it this way. No one is ever in a in an argument, let's say just at a bar or a barbecue or whatever. Uh, there's never going to be a time to the nature of human personalities that you would do what you would like want to do. If you like, you know, the, the kind of West Wing where someone just absolutely with logic, you know, and, and just bowls someone over and absolutely turn, you know, says, well, you now you have no other thing to do except for completely agree with me. Like people are not going to do that on the spot. No one is, it, it's like a power play. I mean, like no one's just going to say, you are right. I supplicate myself to you. I have now changed my entire political viewpoint. No one is going to do that. Um, uh, and so it's better to say like that your job as a communicator is to be reasonable in a very important way and to like plant seeds that that you know you have a nice conversation with someone you don't overly you know moralize and just call them evil outright and you say you know what what happens in the best case scenario is that they walk away from this conversation over the next week say like you know I was kind of thinking about how you know, that guy I met at this party was talking about what's wrong with public schooling. And like, 
although I was really fighting him at the time, it keeps creeping back into my head and I think he might've had some points, right? That, that's the, that's the best you can ask for. And I say that from like a Cato standpoint too. I always, you know, tell, uh, advice to new colleagues and stuff. If they're going to go give a speech or do a debate, like on stage, that the, the point of this debate is not for you to like imagine some sort of like situation where you just absolutely destroy your opponent the the real person people that matter here are the audience and they should walk away being like you know that libertarian dude was like kind of reasonable in a really kind of disturbing way i'd never thought about those things before and like i'd never heard a libertarian communicate in that way and talk about you know justice and morality in a constructive way that's your goal and and you know when i get to go on stage that's my goal but that should be your goal when you're at a party when you're at a bar and you're communicating these ideas and trying to say maybe there's a different way of looking at this so i mean i agree with you aaron that like you know starting off with evil um is is not usually the best play to someone who advocates the other side and just implicitly or explicitly calling them evil. Two, there's a there's a need to communicate shared values. So what you just set out is a need to sh- convince people that you are reasonable, that you're not coming in as just an unreasonable person who holds your ideas because you're irrational, which is you know, we all know there are lots of people who like to go around accusing their political opponents or philosophical opponents, ideological opponents of simply being irrational, and that's the only reason that they don't agree with me. Or psychologically impaired. That that's the other one. Yeah. You know, oh, they have a mental problem. Yeah. <laughs> Those are unhelpful ways to have a fruitful conversation. Um, even if, I mean, we should say there there are unreasonable people out there. There are people who hold political views for irrational, an irrational grounding, and there certainly are – political psychology is a very powerful thing, and there are lots of psychological traits that manifest in political opinions, and those are real as well. And we shouldn't – so we shouldn't like kind of be Pollyannish and say none of that is motivating it. But on an individual conversation basis, it's not the best starting point. But I think too what I find is that an important part of having – fruitful conversations about contentious political issues is I'm going to say demonstrating instead of convincing because convincing makes it sound like you're like there's there's almost trickery involved as opposed to like demonstrating to the people you're talking with that you come from a shared set of values because one of the things and this is like deeply frustrating to me when I'm talking about political liberty is how many people assume that advocates of robust radical political and economic liberty are motivated in corrupt ways towards it like their their underlying values are corrupt so it's just it's just greed that all you care about is me and mine um or that you hate the poor or that you're racist or you know like whatever whatever it is whatever these kind of evil vile character traits are those are the motivating things and they can't imagine that you could simply be – you could be motivated by the same virtues as they are but arrive at a different place for a variety of reasons. You know, And so part of it, you might arrive at a different place because you think that the policy structures work out differently or you know, the, the nature like Hayekian knowledge problems play out differently or you think you understand the relevant history better than they do, so on and so forth. Um, or you might arrive at a different place because, you know, like in my case, 
you, I think I recognize the violence in the system in the way that others don't and think that we should weigh that very, very heavily in our considerations and so on. Um, but I would just tell people like that, I think telling people that you share their values as a common starting point and then have the conversation from there. Because I constantly, you know, I get told all the time, like you can't, you can't have these, you can't have good conversation about liberty with anyone on the left because they're just these kind of like socialist authoritarians who hate individuality and merit and freedom and just want to control everyone and so on and so forth. Um, but I have lots of friends who are on the left or very far left uh, and who I have incredibly fruitful conversations with, you know, if listeners go back to one of my early episodes on Marxism with Ian Bennett, you know, I'm decidedly not a Marxist, but you can have a fruitful conversation um, or the conversation with Matt McManus recently and Chris Fryman about capitalism versus socialism on this show. It, having those common values, because I think we share more in values than we often think, because we end up using politics, political views as a proxy for underlying values. Like someone must hold, hold this, that they have political view X means that they have underlying value Y. Um, and so therefore, it's just a label that we've fixed. Um, and And that... Like the number of times that I just have to tell people like, no, like these are reasonable, good people. They just happen to disagree with you and treat them as reasonably good people and make it clear to them that that's how you view them and you can have good conversations. And then those good conversations often turn into, even if it's not, you're not going to like Ben Shapiro style destroy them or, you know, they can, they have that road to Damascus conversion moment um, but as you said, those either don't happen or they're almost indicative that something's gone wrong. Like the person who has that conversion experience, like suddenly you've convinced me in one conversation, probably didn't hold their original views for good reasons yes. to begin with. And so likely don't hold these new views for good reasons. Um, but you can have like legitimately fruitful conversations where you find meaningful places of overlap or you find disagreements that are interesting in ways worth pursuing. Yeah, it's a huge concern of mine in the political uh, bubbles that we live in and the hyperpartisanization, uh, which you know is going to be something we have to deal with with self-sorting. But the, the one of the things that happens from that is that people don't talk to the other side and they don't have a, they don't have friends who are conservatives or they don't have friends who are on the left and and so they are left to hypothesize without talking to someone else why other people have these different views right so you if you live here where i'm in arlington virginia something like 95% blue. Um, probably every single person you meet is quite left, or maybe extremely left, or if you live in Alabama. And so everyone is taking their kind of non-informed parody or view of why other people have different opinions and like extrapolating from that. And they're not thinking that they have different opinions because they're reasonable. 
Um, you know, and that's how I always begin my campaign finance discussion. If you're talking about the, you know, constitutional law around campaign finance, but the real backdrop political philosophy question in the campaign finance literature, just the campaign finance questions are this question about why do people disagree with you? Everyone has to have a theory about, especially, especially if you are a committed uh, ideologue of some way, if you have an ideology, um, which I imagine, you know, probably most people listening to this do. And so if you have, if you studied it, if you listen to podcasts like this, if you studied your political beliefs, and there are all these people who completely disagree with you in every possible way, it's very easy to say, oh, they disagree with me because I find there's generally three answers that are given to this. Uh, often unknowingly. One is that they're evil, kind of going back to what we were talking about. They disagree because they're just bad people. Um, you know, Republicans are bad. They hate the poor. They hate the environment, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, two is that they're, that they're duped. Um, and this is where the campaign finance thing comes in and other types of spending on political advocacy and criticism of that spending is that there are certain forces out there that like fool people or dupe them and that that one implies that you're that you're not duped right so if if you believe the evil one it implies you're good if you believe the duped one it implies that you're not duped that you've figured it out in some way so that you you know listened to rush limbaugh and read national review and and you know followed cato stuff or whatever and so you know it's just a matter of information or on the other side of course it's like you know you you got through the corporate uh, media structure and you figured out the, you know, that the social justice angle and like that every Republican is duped by Fox News and Republicans think that every person on the left is duped by the universities and Hollywood and mainstream media and public schools. So everyone has this theory about why everyone is duped except for them uh, on the other side. The actual reason why people disagree with you though is far less uh, self aggrandizing. It's that you are not as convincing as you think you are and your arguments are not as knocked down, drag out, like unassailable as you would like them to believe. And there are very reasonable arguments on the other side. There are very, very interesting and, and good contentions from whether it's the left or the right. Uh, like there are people out there who are not crazy, who are not mentally ill, uh, who hold different opinions than you and they're not duped. You know, they've read the other side. They think it's unconvincing. And you have to respect them if you're going to talk to them. Like you can't go into conversation from the immediate standpoint of being like, well, if you knew, you know, you're reading the wrong books, you're reading the wrong websites. And that's how we tend to do it. I mean, we, t most people in this country in the hyperpartisan uh, kind of mindset that is the mind killer, like have that attitude. Well, you know, you're reading the wrong books. If you read the right books, you would agree with me. Guess what? That's not always true. Uh, that's quite often not true. They will not be convinced by those books. So uh, it's your job to be reasonable in that way. I had an interesting experience related to that just earlier this week um, where on Twitter I told the story of probably 12 years ago um, having a brief conversation with a very prominent global warming skeptic scholar. Um, and uh, this this is tied into the understanding why other people might not take your might might not be convinced by your arguments and then the reaction to it. So I asked this question. I said, "Okay, I am not a climate scientist." So this person was a climate scientist, trained as a climate scientist. I'm not, and I look around, and most 
people who are trained as climate scientists have a particular view on global warming as it's happening, it's happening at a rate that should worry us, and it will do damage if we don't do something about it. And that is the overwhelming consensus view. Um, And I don't know enough about climate science to read their arguments and look at their data and their graphs and so on, and then read your arguments and look at your data and your graphs and say, oh, here's the methodological mistake that they made that you're not making or so on. And we can analogize that to, say, evolution versus intelligent design, right? Like there are lots of people trained in evolutionary biology, and overwhelmingly they say intelligent design is wrong, right? Like – and that creationism and young earth creationism and so on, all these things are wrong. But you can find people who are trained in evolutionary biology, have science backgrounds, who write books saying no intelligent design is correct uh, and so on. And all of us kind of recognize that in that case, we should accept the consensus view. We should simply say like, no, I, I can be fairly confident even as a non-expert that the, that the consensus view on evolution versus intelligent design is correct. Um, and so how do I as a non-expert in climate science distinguish the, the disagreement between orthodox and heterodox climate scientists from orthodox and heterodox evolutionary biologists? without basically spending 10 years becoming a climate scientist. And the answer that I got showed that this person hadn't really, like didn't really recognize that deep epistemic difficulty because the answer was, well, my data is good and their data is bad. My data as a climate skeptic is good. The, The global warming alarmists are bad. Whereas in the evolutionary debate, the evolutionists, the, the, the consensus view actually has the good data and the other guys have the bad data, um, which was basically just restating my question, you know. Um, and, and so I think we often like don't recognize that other people can have these like genuine concerns, not, not even just about like – they disagree with the content of our arguments, but they can have concerns about how would they even know, you know, how would they set about evaluating our arguments? And I mentioned this on Twitter, and a frequent response to my question of like just bringing up this this kind of deep epistemic, how do we evaluate um, arguments from experts and how does that play into consensus versus non-consensus views um, – a lot of people just started recommending to me books on showing that the climate science debate, like showing that the consensus view was wrong or so on. Um, like the, if you just read this one book, this problem would evaporate, which in a sense was also just restating my question, but it was, it was in a way that like, just didn't, you know, show that there wasn't this recognition of there can be like, the unpersuasiveness can be a genuine 
concern as opposed to just really you just need more of the information that I've got. No, that's a good point. And, and on the kind of consensus question, going back a little bit to the beginning of this episode where you know, my complaint about contrarianism, one of the manifestations with that with some some self-described libertarians is a adoption of a of a extreme skepticism bordering on conspiratorial let's just call it conspiratorial uh toward you know what they and i'm putting that in like big scare quotes like what they are saying you know so you know this question of like how did we get to so many people who are self-described libertarians uh you know being 9-11 skeptics or something right or you know, why why are there so many conspiratorial libertarians um you know on one level you could you could be generous and as i said as we should be and say you know sometimes a lot of uh reading about various things and learning different sides of the story will make you start to say, well, wow, I never was told that. I never learned about, you know, the new deal and what it was like. I, I learned that the new deal saved America. I never learned this. Why did I, why wasn't I taught this? Why wasn't I taught about, you know, recycling? That was a big one for me, as I, I, I mentioned on old free thoughts episodes too. That, that was one that got me where I had been told, I had to recycle everything, you know, even, you know, in the early nineties when it started coming up. And then I learned about, you know, the difficulties and the economic questions relating to recycling. And so it seemed like I was just being told this thing that no one was actually asking the interesting and difficult questions about it. And so then if you're a certain mindset, you might just go to the mindset of, well, if I'm being told something by everyone, then it's probably or likely wrong. And then I think people get into some very dark places after that, uh, you know, whether it's 9-11 truthing or Holocaust denial or whatever sort of thing that's, that these people who will indulge the contrarian view before they indulge the consensus view is almost a matter of course, right? It's like, it's like, I presume the contrarian view is correct. Well, like, that's probably a bad way of approaching, <laughs> especially, you know, scientific questions. Not to say that there aren't systematic biases in science across the board for various things like, say, dietary research. Um, but like, you know, or the drug war, right? But like, but uh, it's 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 not a good intellectual position to take. Now, the difficulty, as you pointed out, Aaron, and, and you know, I, we we both try and do this insofar as we're able, it, like to actually you know read both sides and like learn about. Because at some point, the answer does require some amount of learning, um, but not to privilege the contrarian side. As a matter of course, right? Like, yeah, read a climate skeptic book, like, you know, not one that's like self-published and or something like that, but like read, read one that like maybe is, is interesting and, and with a, a qualified person and then read the other side or people who criticize that book. Um, you know, you do have to make up your own mind at some point. Um, and, and I don't think that the position of either that, you know, if, unless you can find a, a systematic reason that the consensus is wrong. I, mean, I get going to your intelligent design thing, right? I, I, especially back in undergrad and stuff, was you know often in those debates with with my Christian friends, and they always had a systematic reason why, like the secular humanist bias of the entire scientific world was would that's why everyone was against them. It wasn't because of data; it was that it was that kind of thing. Now, again, be very if your brain goes to that point, 
or you're again, you're trying not to justify your own beliefs to yourself, but like figure out why you, you know, why do you believe something different than what almost every other person believes? You should be aware that there are parts of your own personality that will like, uh, hold yourself up as a contrarian, as I said at the beginning and, and defend yourself as a contrarian because you like that part of your personality trait as opposed to just being like, well, you know, I've looked into it and now I think the global warming really is a problem or that, you know, that's, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's always to be aware of how your own beliefs are positioning you in your own mind. I mean, I, I've said this, I said this years ago that the, that there's every political belief in some sense um, has a sort of implicit clause in it about how that belief uh, in the person's, in the believing person's mind puts them in, in relation to other believers, right? Like that, that, that's like how, where does this put you in? So political beliefs on are like socially and psychologically relative to, right? And so, and so in that sense, if you're a radical, if you're like, if you're a contrarian, you're going to be very different in Alabama than in New York city. And so like, and so always think about that relative positioning in your mind because it's the social and interpersonal aspect of political beliefs that you should be aware of uh, when you're, you know, trying to stake a claim. Part of that is I think we often don't recognize how much we are deeply narrative driven creatures. And so, you know, there's a whole subfield of narrative ethics, which looks at the way that you can, you can talk about like a, a life well lived is one that in retrospect, we can like tell a kind of coherent story about and, and an admirable story about. And I think all of us have that very much like we are, there's a reason we're so attracted to stories and it's because a, par a large part of it is because we think of ourselves as living in one. We are the protagonists in a story about us and we evaluate ourselves as protagonists and we evaluate others as supporting characters or antagonists and so on and we want to have this good story and our political beliefs then become part of this character analysis that we're always running on ourselves and indicative of the kind of character that we have. And we can react strongly then to them being challenged, but we also react strongly to just narratives in general being challenged. This is, you know, I think we both, you and I as undergrads got training in postmodernism and then rejected a lot of it over time as we moved into libertarianism, but I think both of us have had kind of a return to seeing the value in, in a lot of these arguments. And part of it is this postmodernism is kind of, we quote, incredulity towards meta-narratives um, and recognizing how important that is in, in the political debates, but it can go both, it can go both ways. So on the one hand, you get what you were just describing, which is you and it's essentially a restatement of um, Matt McManus on one of our earlier episodes on the rise of the postmodern right makes this argument that the American right has become deeply postmodern. And a big part of that is just profound incredulity to kind of all narratives of expertise and everything becomes like YouTube rabbit holes of this is the stuff they don't want you to know and skepticism of all truth claims or just kind of assertions of – it's true, like if I want to believe it. Uh, and and so if you're over credulous 
about these like meta narratives. It can lead you into these, like, you'll just kind of believe anything um, and have no way of evaluating. On the other hand, it can show up with over-attachment to meta narratives. And this is, I'll give the example of the, the press, the American press publishes all sorts of stuff that is wrong or poorly reasoned or whatever. You know, by and large, like the dismissal of the mainstream press is overblown. You know, you would, most Americans would benefit a lot from reading the entire New York Times every day and believing almost all of it because they'd come away with a bunch, like, closer to the truth than if they assume that everything the New York Times is telling them is wrong. Um, But the press publishes stuff that is either it just gets it wrong or the arguments are poor or there are biases and so on all the time. And the publication of the 1619 Project was met with a huge amount of backlash from conservative but also like our libertarian circles. And, And there were people who basically built many careers around writing up every error in this analysis. And there, there can be value in that. Like it's, if the historical analysis is wrong, you should point out the errors. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And it certainly did make, there were genuine mistakes in, in stuff that was in the 1619 project. But what was striking was that that was the thing that so many people decided needed to have little hobby horse careers built around debunking as opposed to all of the other, there are lots of other things that could have been, lots of history books that have mistakes that, you know, you go after. And I think a lot of what's driving that was ultimately what the 1619 Project represented was a threat to a particular narrative about America and American values and the values of the American founding and kind of the moral purity of the early republic and the people who articulated it and set out our founding documents and so on. Um, and and so there was a strong reaction against because people have kind of built their political identities around I am whatever the founders were. And so if it turns out the founders made mistakes, you know, we can criticize at length like some of the structural decisions they made about how to set up American institutions or they had deeply immoral beliefs Um, or they perpetuated moral wrongs, then that reflects poorly on me as someone who's defined myself around this this particular kind of American mythology. Um, Or it calls into question the conclusions that I have drawn from that. And again, that doesn't mean that we should just, like that, that any criticism of anything that pops that narrative bubble is immediately should be dismissed as just kind of sour grapes you know but we should also be very conscious of if we are reacting strongly against arguments attacking our positions is it is part of our motivation for reacting strongly that we simply like have invested so much in kind of the narrative of our positions i think that's a really important point and i think everyone should think about you know times in their own belief structures where their their reflexive position was to just defend um or you know 
you know, radically defend wherever you are. Now, of course, you shouldn't just give up your beliefs. Like, if you do believe the founding is, you know, mostly good, like, you shouldn't give them up easily, right? I mean, I mean, if they're, you know, justified beliefs, you know, if, if you think one thing that popped in my head when you were talking for myself, you know, is like in all the gun debates that, I, that I'm involved with. Um, I've never been super pro gun. I, I didn't even own a gun until five years ago, but I was doing gun policy. Um, but some people who get really involved with that debate on either side, like just feel that if you say something like, you know, guns, uh, you know, can increase crime. Like they, they just, that kind of thing, they just reflexively say, well, no, 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 guns don't, don't, guns don't increase crime or they can increase suicides or, you know, maybe some guns are a problem. Like if your reaction is just, as, just to be like, no, this isn't, this is impossible. I'm not even going to consider this viewpoint, you know, you know, from my cold dead hands kind of position. Um, and of course the gun debate is a good example of one of these debates where I think both sides push each other to stake out increasingly irrational claims on either side uh, that because that they're posturing more than actually thinking through it and myself you know not being a, a big personal like gun person um you know I, I found myself constantly in debates where i'm like well no that's a really good point from the gun control like i think we should you know address that of whether or not this is this is a concern like how can a gun increase crime you know the suicide issue is extremely important and guns almost assuredly increase the suicide rate. Um, and so, and so you're not doing a reflexive, like, Oh, I see that here's, here's my belief, belief framework X. I see that it, it, I must argue vehemently against, against that in any possible way. Um, and I think you're totally correct, especially for American conservatives, you know, the lionization of the founding is a little over the top for many of them to say, to say the least, um, uh, you know, and then there's often a religious element like, you know, God and, you know, the city on the hill and the constitution was, you know, religiously inspired and stuff. And so, so their reaction, if someone comes in with like the 1619 projects and says, Hey, you know, maybe we should rethink this is sort of immediate defense and not like really listening. Um, and of course it's true on the other side, like, you know, going back, for several generations of historians now, it's been very de rigueur in academia to to heavily criticize the founding, you know, almost as a matter of course, and say, "Well, you know, the Constitution is silly. There are a bunch of racists. We shouldn't even like pay attention to it." So you have both sides like being quite extreme for no good intellectual reason and just defending, defending, defending. And again, going back to some of the points I made earlier, it can be difficult, you know, to say that someone else who you previously disagreed with might be correct or even that they had a good point, right? Like that can be psychologically difficult. It can hurt your standing maybe in, in your social sphere or like in your career. If you work in the kind of field that, that we work in, that you like start saying, Oh, this, these people might actually have a point um, that can be very difficult. Um, and so uh, be aware of that, that impulse you have, whatever your ideological back drop is to just defend, defend, defend. And you know, I've written about it with immigration and guns that like both sides, they, they treat them, the right treats immigration like the left treats guns. Um, and neither of them are really like talking constructively or reasonably about the issue. And so it's, uh, it's just one of those self-awareness things that, you know, think about yourself and think about that impulse that you have to react rather than think about it and check that impulse. 
Yeah, and I would say in practical purposes, what that means is be really aware if you're reasoning backwards. Um, if you are essentially saying, I am – so what we say is like I'm rejecting the other side's arguments because they're not good arguments. That's what we tell ourselves. But frequently we are rejecting the other side's arguments because we are really uncomfortable about the prospect of them being right or about them being like if not if not right knock down drag out they've won at least complicating our counter arguments um and so or that they or that their reasoning uh, this goes with what you're saying and something we talked about for decades from taste and backwards from taste so I don't like immigrants. I, I mean, maybe they don't like, I mean, I'm not even saying it's a racist thing, right? I mean, there's that, but I'm saying maybe they don't like the diversity of restaurants and things that immigrants bring. That's not what they're really into. Or you don't like guns. You just like, you aesthetically hate them. You're disgusted by them. People who like shooting them are weird to you. Um, which is fine as a taste preference, but if you just reason backward from that and say, here's my taste, therefore policy X is correct, that's bad reasoning. Yeah, or this this shows up with – on the right, this was indicative of a lot of the anti-gay marriage stuff was a lot of arguments we made. About it's, it's bad for kids. It breaks down society, blah, blah, blah. We're gonna have, we are gonna have data about that, which the data wasn't any good, but it was ultimately just a lot of these people thought that – Gay relationships were yucky was kind of their driving thing. Or on the left, I think you see this with a lot of aversion to deeply held religious beliefs, which, you know, deeply held religious beliefs can manifest in bad ways in the political sphere. Um, but there are there are a lot of people on the left who I think are just uncomfortable with people organizing their lives around and their social relationships around deeply held religious beliefs. Um, and so they it turns into like actually all evangelical Christians are like those Jesus camp people and that's bad. So therefore, you know, um that yeah, I think that that politics of taste and recognizing that this is, I mean, to some extent like the core of liberalism is the core of liberalism is like a negative project of like I shouldn't – like we should not be restricting people's freedoms is in part just kind of recognizing there's a diversity of tastes and that's OK and it, other people can live their lives differently. I think the core of liberalism is a positive project of like this is something worth really pursuing and being passionate and excited about is, is saying there's a diversity of taste. People live their lives in different ways, identify in different ways and so on and that's awesome. Like that's – that in and of itself is even if like I don't want to identify that way or I don't want to live that way, the fact that the world is full of people doing all these diverse things is awesome and worth celebrating and worth kind of promoting. Yeah, and as Jamie White said on an episode of Free Thoughts years ago, the New Zealand philosopher we had on, like it's not actually liberalism if you only believe in allowing things that you like. Right. It's like you, it has to be, you have to like, I hate, you know, heroin use or I hate gun use. I hate, you know, I hate gay marriage, but I'm going to allow it in a liberal society. Otherwise, it's just, it's just you allowing things you like and not allowing things you don't like. Um, and the term he uses in that 
episode, which I've used, I've taken on is, is he calls it broad-minded fascism, where there are many communities that look very liberal because they let marijuana use and gay marriage and stuff, but actually they just, they look liberal because they like to allow everything that they like and disallow everything that they don't like. So, you know, you and I went to Boulder, so it's easier to smoke a joint than smoke a cigarette, right? And because they, they, they're totally okay with marijuana and they hate tobacco. Uh, that's not liberalism. And this is just briefly, I think one of the fundamental dangers of denying political freedom or setting up an apparatus for denying it. Uh, and, and so this is where, you know, I think some of the, the equivalency between the, the authoritarianism of the contemporary right and authoritarianism of the contemporary left are, is a little bit disingenuous. Um, but, one area that I think both sides have a real problem is in not recognizing how much tastes motivates their political conclusions and then in not recognizing how much having a a strong centralized government will inevitably pull people into essentially weaponizing their tastes against each other. Um, that, that you, this thing, it is too, it is too tempting to use it. And even if you think you're like a good person and you're pro-freedom and you're pro-liberalism and you are pro-pluralism, um, if there's this thing that can, you can use it to stop those people who are living in ways you don't like from living in those ways, or their choices are making you uncomfortable. If you can stamp that out, the draw will be there and we can see it. We can certainly see it on the right right now with the attempts to shut down private actors expressing opinions that, but we see it on the left too. And I think that the, the big, the big difference is that the right sees the state as right now, the right sees the state as like, you're damn right. I can use this tool. I can use it to stomp out uh, based on taste and so on. The left, I think, just doesn't recognize the state inevitably playing that role um, and doesn't recognize when they are using it in those ways, even if right now it might be less acute than what like DeSantis is up to and so on. Um, but I want to close then with the following question related to all that, which is you and I have been in – professional liberty circles for over a decade now. And the American political landscape has changed a lot in that time, not for the better. You know, um, the political culture has changed, not for the better. But even even the, in liberty circles, I think it's changed. The culture has changed, not for the better. And people who used to be amenable to arguments for liberty seem to be rather less so uh, as, as we get pulled in these directions. Um, the even, even just basic kind of rhetoric has been polarized in a, in a much deeper way than it had been. I'm not gonna say historically, because we often kind of have this sense that like polarization is way worse today than it's ever been, which is not, is not the case, but certainly, you know, like in potentially in like our lifetimes, um, things have gotten a lot worse, where even just like the choices of terms you use to refer to things get 
politicized such that no matter what the argument you're making, if you choose to use this particular term as opposed to that term, you're pigeonholed as being on one side or another or you're immediately under suspicion or so on. And this makes this an incredibly fraught and complicated, challenging environment to be making the case for, I think, genuine liberalism, genuine liberty, and and not just kind of toleration, but like celebration of a, a pluralistic and dynamic society. That's our uphill battle. So looking at the environment as it stands right now, and this is a big question for a final one. Um, but if there's anything I know about you, Trevor, it's your ability to be concise. Uh, how how do we how do we talk about this? Like, what is what should we be doing as advocates for this genuine radical liberalism? What should we be doing in this environment in terms of how we approach talking about these ideas? Well, I think you touched on it a bit that the. And, and I'm not optimistic. I, I I think it was J. Alfred Nock who wrote about the remnant. Different people have said the progress of society, maybe it's sinusoidal or whatever sort of metaphor you want to use, is that is that people will continually push to bludgeon each other with the state. And most people's reaction from being bludgeoned by the state in the tastes of one side uh, is to – react by bludgeoning with the state with the tastes of their side um and it's a sort of circle of violence at the at the heart um because you can't get people to put down put down the bludgeon when their biggest justification for picking it up is like well he just bludgeoned me last term uh you know they just bludgeoned us and so we're going to bludgeon them and and i think you're right that Insofar as conservatives, you know, I think a relatively small fraction who actually, you know, have strong liberal and libertarian leanings, you know, tried to preach at different times over the last 40 years of limited government and philosophies like originalism as an impartial view of interpreting the Constitution. Uh, you have a bunch of conservatives who kind of flipped and became just mad that they had been bludgeoned by the left for so long in their minds that now it, the only answer to bludgeoning is more bludgeoning. And, you know, I, I'm thinking about Adrian Vermeule, uh, Harvard law professor who became a very diehard Catholic relatively recently. And he used to be an originalist and now he just advocates for what he calls common good constitutionalism. Uh, which is just interpreting the constitution with conservative values. And really he's saying there like, you know, we never, they, they bludgeoned us with bad interpretations of the constitution according to their values. So it's time for us to just take off the gloves, stop pretending that the constitution can be interpreted at all impartially and then just bludgeon them with it on our side. What do you get from that? I mean, you get a kind of Hobbesian war of all against all, but you know, in courtrooms and elections and suits and and wear, while wearing suits, like, um, and you have to get someone to put down the bludgeon, and I think that only happens when it, it's seen as like extremely bad. You know, I, the analogy here would be the. Westphalian peace after the Thirty Years' War in 1648. You know, we're talking about 150 years after Martin Luther and the Reformation of different people using the state to either bludgeon Catholics or bludgeon Protestants and coming to an idea that, well, how about neither of us to some extent bludgeon the other side? And so I think that 
it just comes to some sort of, you know, the liberals stand around, the true liberals stand around and wait as society starts using the state against each other. And then at some point, hopefully they say, hey, it's a good idea to stop using the state in such a way. It helps us both if we can just agree to live our lives openly and tolerate with tolerance and respect for each other. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. This show is listener supported. If you'd like to become a member, gain access to our Discord community, and listen to every new episode two weeks before its public release, look for the link in the show notes or head to reimagininglibertycom slash subscribe.